0: Hey, I'm Hendeleva and welcome to the Immigration Mike podcast, where we take you through the journey and story of every guest and the personal reason why they're fighting for immigrants across the nation in their own way. Find all Immigration Mike interviews on Apple Podcasts now. Ryan Little. Hello, and welcome to the Immigration Mike podcast. We are in July of 2019, and the reason why I'm saying July 2019 is because it's official we are moving towards the 2020 elections. So there's a lot to cover, there's a lot to talk about, Uh, there is a lot going on in terms of immigration and immigration news, so let's get into it. Well, the first thing I want to talk about is that I do have an update. Uh, The last episode, I spoke about a potential event happening related to the Immigration Bank podcast to the 100th episode coming this November. And I had a great meeting with a contact from Hofstra University on Long Island. And we are only a couple of meetings away from making everything official. So I'm really excited. Hofstra University is excited. And we have a lot of momentum going into November. And I really appreciate the messages of support already. You know, I posted it on the Instagram story and a few people hit me up and, you know, they're excited. They want tickets already. <laughs> and I'm glad that you guys want to hang out with me like that. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's going to be a great event. More details to come soon. But uh, again, it's significant because it'll be one year away from the upcoming presidential elections. And this is just my way of, energizing and let's get it going and, um, you know, doing podcasting for Long Island. So more updates to come soon uh, here on the podcast. So I'm sure you all remember the image of the Syrian boy who um, washed the shore. And, you know, it was a photograph that really captivated the nation a few years ago. Uh, Recently... Recently, there was an image, a similar image, um, actually just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, they were um, two Salvadoran migrants, uh, Oscar Alberto Martinez Ramirez and his almost two-year-old daughter Valeria. They were uh, found on the bank of the Rio Grande in Matamoros, Mexico on June 24th. So actually not a couple of weeks ago. I mean, just last week. and they drown trying to cross the river to Brownsville, Texas. And I'm looking at the image, and I mean, the little girl has her arm wrapped around her dad's neck. Um, they're both lying face down, right on the edge of, of the water. And um, of course, it, it, it's a very powerful image, and it um, reminds me of the the picture of the Syrian boy who drowned um i mean what i've seen on social media is people sharing it as a way to say look look at the realities of the immigration system and of turning away refugees and the dangerous trek they had to make Uh, but then you have people also saying you know please do not share that that is triggering um you know for their personal experience or what they've gone through And, you know, you shouldn't need an image like that to shock people into caring. So, yeah, so that's that's what I've seen on social media about it. I just thought I would uh, bring it up because it is something that has been going on a lot in the conversation. The next thing is, you know, something very serious. Um, And of course, it has to do with the president. And this has to do with a threat he made a few weeks ago saying, you know, via Twitter, Next week, ICE will begin the process of removing the millions of illegal aliens who have illicitly found their way into the United States. They will be removed as fast as they come in. Mexico, using their strong immigration laws, is doing a very good job of stopping people long before they get to our southern border. Guatemala is getting ready to sign a safe... Whatever, I'm not going to read the rest because, you know... hate this guy. Um. So yeah, so, so Trump made that threat and then... Again, last week, he it was kind of a bait and switch. Then he said, at the request of Democrats, I have delayed the illegal immigration removal process, deportation, for two weeks to see if the Democrats and Republicans can get together and work out a solution to the asylum and loophole problems at the southern border. If not, deportation start. And, you know, I'm, I'm struggling with frustration right now because... So... so Let's let's take it back to the very first episode of Immigration Mike. Uh, may, maybe not the first, but I think this was like the second, the first full length interview of Immigration Mike. The reason why Immigration Mike started in an interview format is because one of my close friends from high school, uh, Stefan Acevedo, go you could go check out that episode. He. Uh, He wrote a very passionate post on Facebook talking about how most of his ESL students uh, from his adult class went into hiding for more than a week in 2016. Now, the reason why they went into hiding was because there were rumors of deportation raids that had leaked from the Obama administration. And at the time, this was during Trump's ascendancy to the campaign that would eventually become the presidency. And so the the way that this was seen was as a way to affirm the American people that they didn't have to vote for Trump because they were putting immigration under control, but... The reason why it backfired was because these rumors leaked and activists across the nation were outraged on social media. The way I saw it was that this was going to be the machine that would be handed to Trump in case he won eventually. And he did. And so while the deportation rumors were leaked from the Obama administration, Trump is explicitly saying it on Twitter. And in this instance, he used it to try to get something out of the Democrats. And so, yeah, so that's that's where we are on that. You know, he called off the raids, but, you know, any minute he could hop back on Twitter and say that he's going to do this again. And I mean, it has to be crushing. It has to be crushing. It's constant fear. And that's why at the end of all my interviews, you know, I always say, I always ask my guests, what are some words of encouragement? What are some words of inspiration? Can you give us something to help other people get through their uh, whatever they're experiencing? And the last thing I want to talk about is how the Supreme Court will hear a case on whether Trump lawfully ended the DACA program. And this will be next year in 2020. And so according to The Hill, it, it was a win for the Trump administration because after a pair of federal appeals courts ruled that the wind down to the DACA program was unlawful, um, now it's being now it's going to be heard by the Supreme Court. Which leans conservative. So yeah, so they will probably hand down their ruling as the presidential race reaches a fever pitch in the early summer of 2020. So we have a lot, a lot, a lot to do between the constant threat of raids, seeing the humanitarian crisis continue to unfold at the southern border, and now seeing what will happen with DACA and the Supreme Court in 2020. And so this week, I have an interview with Ron Bautista. Now, you may know him as the former mayoral candidate for Hoboken in New Jersey. And he is actually now running for the Third Ward City Council. And so he is formerly undocumented, but how I met him was in a completely different capacity. There was an event at the Ecuadorian Consulate in Queens and he was there to give a speech on leadership and career building, but in his talk, he spoke a little bit about his experience of being undocumented and a little bit about his personal story, which eventually, you know, translated into this leadership seminar. So here is my conversation with Brown Bautista, and don't forget to follow Immigration Mike on Instagram, and then you can follow my personal handles at Handle on the on Twitter and at him on the mic on instagram so today i am sitting here with ron bautista he is running for third war city council in hoboken new jersey and he is previously undocumented is what your bio says um And you are Ecuadorian, correct?
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm Ecuadorian. I was born in Ecuador. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm a U.S. citizen now. Uh, I've been a U.S. citizen for about four years. Mm -hmm. And I came to the U.S. when I was almost 13 with my mom. My dad followed a bit later.
0: Well, there's a lot to unpack there. So so I myself, I am uh, half Ecuadorian, which is how we came to me at the ecuadorian consulate uh and you gave a presentation there that night what was that presentation i can't remember was it on, it was on leadership qualities or something like that it was
1: on leadership uh i had just uh finished uh running for mayor in hoboken
0: uh i've been living in hoboken for 20 years can i just say yeah i really love hoboken uh, like, i love it and I, I'll, say, it. I'll say i'll say because so being from long island being from the suburbs and then currently right now living in queens new york like long island is too far for me to go to get that kind of like away from the city but then like if i take the path train i can just hit hoboken i can hit Grove street station and to me like it's like a philadelphia or like a maryland like right across the water that nobody knows about you know and and i really enjoy like just how much space and how lively it is uh, what do you tell, t- talk to me about that? About yeah, that yeah. I,
1: so you know, my my roots with Hoboken, my connection with Hoboken started with my family. So mm-hmm. y- usually that happens with with migration. You go and you have some type of support group or some type of you know uh, point of reference, I guess, to where you're going. Um, especially when you go to a, p- a place that like Hoboken, right? So Hoboken, uh, my mom's uh, sister uh, was living there already. Uh, her husband. Uh, my aunt's husband. He's born and raised from Hoboken, and I feel like Hoboken has that perfect mix of like city and the calmness of a town also, but enough movement for you to always be on the move and active. Um, you know we've improved in in open space and and we have we're just a transportation hub. We have trains, ferries. Uh, we have bikes, buses, uh, you name it, light rail, uh, and that connection goes into New- the rest of New Jersey, but we're also very well connected to New York City, mm-hmm. so that helps really um, have that benefit of 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 being closer to where the jobs are, and also where, where all this activity is happening, but we're also working towards bringing that activity over to Hoboken as well. Yeah.
0: Awesome. Uh, so let's go to your... Roots uh, in Ecuador. Yes. Now I read that you're from Salinas. So funny story. I'm okay. I'm not originally from
1: Salinas, okay. but my dad was.
0: So where my are you da- originally from? So I
1: was born in Guayaquil. Okay. And uh, Salinas is uh, the one of the most popular beaches in in uh, in Ecuador. Mm-hmm. It's two hours away from from Guayaquil, mm-hmm. and my dad was born and raised in Salinas. So I always say that you know. Hoboken, Salinas, Guayaquil, it's kind of, they're all home to me. It's kind of like when you go to your grandma's house or your mother's house or your house, mm-hmm. they're all home, but in a different way. So that's how I see the different places that I, I call my hometowns.
0: If you okay. will. And so when you were growing up in your early years, yeah. uh, what was that like for you?
1: So it was very family-oriented. Uh, I, you know, had the the benefit of living in a building complex that had parks in between the buildings. So it was very closely in community. You, you know, people would just, you know, yell out the window to call your other friends mm-hmm. that live next door or that live in the other buildings. And you would come downstairs, play soccer. Uh, Are you a big soccer fan? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm a Google. big soccer fan. I wish I followed uh, the teams more than uh, I do, but, uh, but yeah, I'm a big fan, I'm, I'm a Barca fan, I'm a, I follow the Ecuadorian national team, I follow the Barcelona from Ecuador, yes. which was actually founded by uh, Catalanes like 88 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, I'm, I, I played soccer when I went to high school in Hoboken and uh, i still i still play soccer every week actually on friday really? nights here in new york in the co league nothing too professional nothing too competitive because no, i want I mean, to i mean the thing <laughs> is, no,
0: <laughs> but, i mean what i'll say and for all the listeners is that for me i just became a soccer fan one year ago because oh, wow. before that it was too slow for me and i huh. couldn't it was one year ago that i could really concentrate and ever since i've been hooked what changed it for you Understanding that soccer is like a game of human Tetris, okay, where like different puzzle pieces have to connect. Uh huh. Um, and before I didn't understand how like in ninety minutes people weren't scoring more, like forty to fifty or something. Like I didn't get it. Yeah. But then when I started looking at it like Tetris, I was able to concentrate more, and then I started to be able to add on the teams and then the personalities and then the money that goes into it, and then I actually played for a coet soccer league uh, last year, and th- and actually playing. And actually being in the field and understanding made me fall in love with it even more. And then the Champions League, and then I went to go watch uh, PSG play in Paris. And, like, just this whole world that existed yeah. just opened up for me. And um, last month I got my Messi jersey, so. Nice. Yes. Nice. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so. that,
1: that's, that's awesome. Yeah, I think, I feel that when you experience, uh, and this comes not just with soccer, but with everything that, you know, in society, like, you know uh, being open to immigrants and the immigrant story mm-hmm. for example the more you experience that the more you get to understand it and join that part of that conversation right yeah. so i feel like that's what may maybe happened to you you started like actually huh okay i see in a way that actually connects with me i i i, right. I feel like i understand it and i start liking it and, and uh, yeah and, and, and so right
0: now heavily invested in the women's world cup have i mean, I just went to go watch um the U.S. men's national team play against Trinidad in Cleveland, mm-hmm. and the Copa America. So it's like I love it, you know. It's like year round
1: there's something. to There is always a tournament going on, and yeah, and, uh, yeah, and I, what what I love is that in, in Hoboken. So I went, I was in the high school team, mm-hmm. uh, soccer team, and uh, you know, I've the friends that I have from uh, my team, I'm friends with them up to this date. Right. So the connection remains. Not everybody lives still in Hoboken, but they live in the surrounding areas. Mm-hmm. We still catch up and like play some soccer uh, every now and then, um, but also being able to catch the game in a in a random bar in Hoboken. Right. Uh, in the fact that you're able to catch soccer randomly in a place, mm-hmm. I think that shows how much the sport has grown. Actually, this Friday, mm-hmm. this Friday, there starts. There's a tournament of uh, the the minor leagues uh, for. Uh, the, the big teams from Europe they're coming over to Hoboken to okay. play by the waterfront that's
0: awesome. so we have
1: one of the one of the um, soccer fields that has the best views of New York City and yeah. the Hudson River uh, it's, in, it's called Sinatra Park because Sinatra was uh, is one of the one of the sons of or the son of of, uh, of Hoboken so
0: okay.
1: um, yeah like that's the the scenery the the waterfront the awesome. the history everything really connects us over there so that's awesome man. yeah
0: let's talk a little more after the interview about that <laughs> um so so take me through um your what you consider to be your immigration story yeah um through your early years um to to the U S yeah so I, I came uh directly to Hoboken I've been
1: there all the twenty years that I've been here in the states um I came with a, a tourist visa mm-hmm. with my mom. It wasn't the first time I had come, I had come before that for two months, uh, two years prior to that in in 1997, and uh, when we came in 1999, it was because of political decisions. So political decisions affected the economy and the livelihoods of uh, people in Ecuador.
0: What was the and it was it was a big,
1: it was a big uh, economic crash. Mm-hmm. I always say that there is uh, it's an interesting correlation between what happens in Latin America and then it happens in the US. Mm-hmm. So when there was the economic crash with the banks in Ecuador, that was in 1999, okay. and then we had the economic crash over here mm-hmm. uh a few years later. Mm-hmm. Uh and it was also because of the greed of uh, certain financial institutions mm-hmm. and bankers. Uh, and so when that happened, you know, your, all your savings just went poof, you know, so, mm-hmm. like you, you lost all your savings.
0: And so that's what happened to your family. And
1: uh, it, mine, and that's the story of many Ecuadorians in that time. That time period from 99 to many years later was affected by what happened with the, mm-hmm. with the banks and the economy and the crash of the currency. So now mm-hmm. we, so since the year 2000, I believe, we have the U.S. dollar. Mm-hmm. Um, so it has its benefits and its uh, detriments. It had, the economy is stable now in some way in terms of the currency mm-hmm. and then inflation. But back then it was, it was uncontrollable. So uh, all that affected us. And my dad said to my mom, listen, four of us, because I have an older brother, uh, cannot hold on. You have to go to your sisters in Hoboken mm. for a little bit of time until we get to figure things out and we can stabilize over here with the business and income, et cetera. Uh, and so I came to the U.S. with a momentary plan. And then my mom saw the opportunities that I could have here in the U.S. Um, and then my dad's plans changed. And he said, then I'm coming to you. So she he, he came and joined us later.
0: Okay. And um
1: we yeah, overstayed was, our visa. Okay. So we stayed uh, we overstayed our visa because there there was no pathway. There was no pathway for us to follow. There was also a lot of you know myths, uh, you know, what people tell other people. Mm. Uh, within the men, community, m- with the community, within family members, there mm. uh, uh their their ideas of this is no, there's no other way to do it. Um also lawyers, you know, even when I when we had already started the process of my uncle, my mom's brother petitioning us uh, because of, you know, of the pathway was we couldn't, you know, we we couldn't be documented here in the U.S. while we were waiting for the petition to be uh, taken care of. Right. So the petition for us to get the green card. It took 11 years and I would say that I consider myself one of the lucky ones because okay. there's people that wait a lot longer many more years or that don't even have that pathway at all mm-hmm. and they end up you know not getting their their documents and I was lucky enough to be able to get them but you know when we were when I was told by I had to go through three uh, different lawyers towards the end because towards when he was about to my mom was about to get it because the original lawyers had said that I was not included in the process. That I was too old. Uh, you know that when they requested the papers for my mom and I, that it wouldn't it wouldn't be included because of my age. I was already older than eighteen years old. And then I finally found a lawyer that actually said no. There is a calculation that you make that actually shows how old you are in the eyes of the law and based on when you were petitioned etc and so I that lawyer actually found a way that I would be included in Mm -hmm. that petition and I was able to get my green card as soon as I got my green card as soon as I graduated from uh, college so that it was perfect timing. Mm -hmm. Tell me about your high school and
0: college years like during this time.
1: Uh, It was it was tough Uh, you know when when you talk about the immigrant experience especially when being undocumented um you know i i have friends that because of their status they, they give they just gave up on college right mm-hmm. they said why am i gonna put any effort in high school when i won't be able to go to college afterwards because of how expensive it is and because of my status i can't get scholarships i can't get financial aid uh i just give up i'm not going to uh and then uh, you know my my parents really pushed me to actually you know go to college but before going to college uh, teachers that also were saying, well, you, you have the grades, uh, you, 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 know, you have, the, you have the, the ability to go to universities like Stevens, Stevens Institute of Technology, which is one of the top 20 uh, engineering schools in the country. It's in Hoboken. Okay. And uh, when we went to check, there was a scholarship program but I, I wouldn't qualify because I wasn't I wasn't documented. Mm-hmm. So things like that is that you know the the merit the meritocracy does not did not exist mm-hmm. uh, for me when I was undocumented. Uh, it does not exist still for many immigrants. So I I do feel like even as a as as I am a US citizen now for the past few years I feel that urge to always uh, advocate for for that community because that's part of my identity, that's Mm -hmm. part of who, uh, not who I was, but who I am as a person, and we have to to be those voices for the people that uh, may not be able to.
0: What were your views of the immigration movement or, you know, stuff that was going on nationally during that time? so it it was different so
1: back when i was undocumented there was no dreamer movement right there was no push everybody was in the shadows um so for me it, you know it, it was tough it, you know it was you know coming out to um specific teachers and telling them why i couldn't apply for specific scholarships
0: or colleges etc and why uh, it was what tough. was that specific like like internal criteria that you had to like tell you to put that trust in the teacher
1: I, I think it would be I give you an example one of my teachers I always I always remember this um, I, I don't know how I chose her to tell her I guess because she was always open to help me her mentality was very progressive she was my social studies teacher and, uh, and one time when she found out that I was undocumented and I couldn't get a scholarship for, 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 uni- for the university, she uh, did a pop-up quiz to the whole class on a citizenship test. So it was 100 questions, citizenship test, everybody takes it. And I got an 85. And the majority of the class uh, didn't right. pass. So then she told the whole class, I said, be thankful that you're born with that privilege of being a US citizen mm-hmm. because many people have to earn that 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 privilege. So mm-hmm. um that that really resonated with me, that really impacted me and I've always been thankful uh to her. actually I I I messaged her right after I got my citizenship and I said, you know, I wanted to share this with you because you supported me when when I was in high school and. What it was she t- saying? did you go- She is, it was it was very emotional for her. It was very mm-hmm. uh, you know yeah I'm sure you know as a as a teacher hearing from your students and saying hey you changed my life it's, it's a big deal mm. Um, going into college uh, I I was I went to a community college I was getting my, my you know I, I always had that mentality of running and going into politics what I always say is that you know in life you could either you know when you're affected for example with the politics of, of things you have two choices. You either become frustrated and you say, to hell with it, I'm not going to get involved in it, or you, you know, get empowered and say, no, I'm going to change it. I want to be involved in some way. And, uh, and the way that I always saw that I had to be involved was by, at some point, running for office. Mm-hmm. So although it wasn't documented, that was always my passion, my passion was always uh, service for the community and uh i i would talk to my dad and i said i didn't know I, I don't know what to go to school for uh and i know i like the business side i know i like politics and service and he said well a good um good politician must also be a good manager a good uh somebody that knows the finances and and he said well you know and the basis for every business is accounting so i did an associate in accounting mm-hmm. um my Dad and my mom, in order to uh, live in the States or you know to uh, as a profession, my, da- my mom was an English teacher back in Ecuador. My dad was a, uh, uh, he was a marketing uh, director over there in Ecuador as well. When they came here, they, they did what people always tell you to do. You have to do any type of job that you can right. uh, although that now I find that it 's not true that there are ways that people can work in their own professions here uh, mm-hmm. in the States, even as undocumented uh and many people have done that but you know many times you don't learn that until you actually talk to somebody that has lived it you know the whole thing of if i knew then what i know now right right um but they had to work in cleaning business so in a cleaning of homes uh all over hoboken they only focused in hoboken uh, and they and uh but when i was uh, almost going to graduate from from my 2 year college um my dad uh, was diagnosed with uh, ALS with uh, Lou Gehrig's disease when that happened uh, he couldn 't work anymore, so I, I stepped up I started working with my mom and cleaning uh, homes all over hoboken. Uh, we cleaned around uh, thirty five homes for thirty five families all over hoboken uh, the people that we we cleaned for they were like family they were, they were amazing people uh, we still you know have connections with them I still you know see them everywhere and uh, I, I'm very appreciative of, of, of the way that 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 they treated us and that they treated my dad as well. The appreciation, that the respect that they have for my parents mm-hmm. is amazing, mm-hmm. you know. And it's something that I feel like back in our countries, we should learn that as well. Back in, mm-hmm. in Latin America, we should learn how to appreciate and how to uplift uh, the people who do things like, like cleaning services, right? Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, and, and, and I know this
0: from family, yeah. having... Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 And I've gone through those conversations with them, even when they talk about you know uh, immigration in our countries, because many right. times
0: Peruvians or Colombians come into or
1: Venezuelans go
0: into. Wait, but it's it's very interesting what we're taught here, mm-hmm. kind of like where we're taught justice at a young age, or mm-hmm. you know like Martin Luther King or something, mm-hmm. and then like that's not necessarily uh, something that resonates with our family in Latin America. It's something different.
1: You yeah. Know? And I I feel like. You know uh, as immigrants, we have a uh, a great opportunity that over here we we have more of uh openness to connect with other people mm-hmm. than you know to separate it- us from each other right mm-hmm. so um having that openness and that and and that experience of different cultures helps us be better you know be better every day uh, and and learning from those experiences helps us even share with family back, uh, right. back in Latin America and in, in our countries of origin or countries of our families. But going back to, you know, um, my parents, you know, I, I, I worked cleaning homes with my, with my mom. Um, I, that's the way I had to grow the, number, the, the, the amount of work that uh, we were doing so that I could pay for my college tuition. Now going to a four-year college. Uh, and I was able to graduate with a bachelors without without that uh, mm-hmm. But that was also because I was fortunate enough to go to a state school mm-hmm. uh, and you know learn being able to uh, Work but also gain that ex- professional experience by being involved in the community. I was executive director of uh, Organización Juventud Ecuatoriana, mm-hmm. which is an Ecuadorian nonprofit organization in uh, New York um because I wanted to get back to the community, I wanted to be involved, there was always that passion, so um, I became involved, and we gave scholarships five scholarships uh, every year. I did it for three years, and they, to this day they 've been they 've been around for eleven years, so mm-hmm. the amount of scholarships that they 've given for um, students from Ecuadorian heritage uh, in the tri state area has been has been amazing mm-hmm. and, and and the, how involved they are in giving back to the community, that's very inspiring, and I will support them every way I can.
0: Yeah, and, and like you mentioned, you know, we met through one of their events, and you had just finished running for mayor. Uh, talk to me about that process, about deciding to run for mayor, and how you actually like went about your campaign. <laughs>
1: so, um, deciding to run for mayor uh, How old came- were you
0: when you decided to run for mayor?
1: Yeah, I cause cause you're 29, you're 32 now, right? I'm, I'm yeah, I'm thirty two. Gonna be okay. thirty three in July. Okay. Uh, so I would have been t- uh, about twenty eight years old okay. when I decided. I ran two years ago, so I ran. I, I ran. uh you know, I ran at thirty years
0: old, with well, thirty one. Uh, wow. I mean, the reason why I point out the age is because I'm thirty and I'm not even thinking like <laughs> running for mayor. So like,
1: well, you know, it's it was a conversation with with a friend of mine, a very close friend of mine. Uh, and, uh, you know, running the numbers and, and, and also the impact that we can have uh, running for mayor instead of running for city council at that time, um, it was feasible. We saw, we saw it as something that it can be done. I mean, look at Alexandra Castro Cortez, look at, look at um, um, just uh, recently with Caban, you know, in, in Queens. Last night, yeah, last night. So all these, uh, all these races is, is when people decide to take that leap and go for the, the, the biggest impact. That's when it becomes real for people. That's mm-hmm. when, that's when you get the message across. So, no, I did not win, uh, but the impact that we made, uh, it it it's amazing. You know, like, for example, I one of my proposals. Uh, that I came up with uh, was, uh, you know, being able to, from my experience going through high school locally, was uh, for there to be a partnership between okay. my two-year college and the high school. I okay. said there should be a partnership for early college uh, program. Mm-hmm. And that way, uh, Hoboken High School students could uh, you know graduate high school with two diplomas with a high school diploma and with an associate's degree that's interesting and this is not something that i made up of the blue i saw a program that was being done in jersey city uh with uh with a private school and i said that's something that we could definitely do mm-hmm. uh so i i advocated th- with for it throughout the mayoral campaign um and then after the mayoral campaign i met with the, uh, the school the, the superintendent of schools she was very open to different ideas that I had that I was pushing for. And when I, I mentioned that to her, she was very interested as well. And just a month ago, it was announced that they were implemented the program starting next year for That's the awesome. for the class that would graduate in four years. Right. So I that that couldn't have been done if I didn't decide, no, I'm gonna go for the for for mayor. Uh, it 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 was Besides believing, and, and, you know, somebody had told me when I decided to, to run for mayor and I was in the middle of the race, it was a month before the, the first debate. Somebody told me, it's like, well, you're not going to win. So you have to focus about, how, and I said, and I stopped right there. I was like, I, I'm not going to go with the mentality that I'm going to mm-hmm. lose because then they're going to eat me alive in the debates. Right. I have to go in with the confidence that I'm going to do everything I can to win but not just to win, just for winning, to win for a specific goal, to make uh, a city that's more people friendly, to uh, make sure we put people first when it comes to uh, priorities in, in, in pedestrian safety, in transportation, in uh, affordability, uh, you know, all of that If it really is, you know, I, I believe and that it's tr- it was true then, it's true now, I think consistency is important I believe that more, ad, more advocates have to run for office, mm-hmm. because advocates really focus on transforming people's frustrations into real solutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not focused on the politics, they say, no, what we believe in, that's what we're going to stand for, and then we're going to figure out the way to connect with as many people as possible to push this forward, because we know, based on studies, based on proof that this kind of policies work and help people. Mm-hmm. So um, that's, that's what I did uh, back then. It helped because it pushed the narrative to, to uh, where I, I, was, what I was working for. Uh, I, in the first debate, I called out uh, all the candidates. It was six of us in total. And I called out all the candidates and I said, you know, uh, the majority of them were city council members. And I said, you have the power right now to introduce a resolution to make Hoboken a, a fair and welcoming city. And uh, I, I challenge you all to, to do that. And the only one that responded was the one that actually won the election. Okay. And his first, um, his first, um, uh, what do you call it? Resolution uh, as mayor, his first uh, uh, executive order, if you will, mm-hmm. was to make a book a fair and welcome in the city.
0: Welcome to who? And it's,
1: it's, um, it's a way to, um, that, that's a method that's presented by the ACLU, for example, mm-hmm. to so that cities don't uh, cities and city entities and the police department does not cooperate with ICE okay. uh, on deportations mm-hmm. uh, so that you can really uh, have a police that can work together with uh, immigrant communities mm-hmm. uh, because if there's that fear that police works together with um, with uh, ICE, then there's that fear of talking to the police and a community that doesn't have a conversa- that doesn't have the conversations and the openness to talk to po- to the police is a city that that is is not safe because you need that communication in order for people to if you see something say something mm-hmm. but if you're too afraid to even engage with a policeman
0: that's not the kind of city that we want and so the reason I was asking was because um when i first started my career it was as a community organizer the welcoming long island program which is part of the welcoming america network with of what it was back then Mm -hmm. um so this sounds uh, this sounds similar a little different but like we're sort of in the same sphere when it comes to like our work um you said you mentioned you didn't win right Mm -hmm. um did you feel a loss internally or did you feel that it was a win because you got to push forward a narrative uh, well
1: when at that moment when you lose you feel the, you feel it it's I'm it's saying because when you a, say it, it's still with optimism it's a, so it's a no but it's a it, that's because uh, I'm a you know I've, I've gone through it right mm-hmm. but you know it's it's not the you know it's kind of like when you talk about courage right the courage is not the absence of fear right Courage is that you got that fear and you still went through it, mm-hmm. and I felt that throughout the whole campaign. It was seven months of campaigning, mm-hmm. and then I felt the hit of losing. Nobody likes to lose. Mm-hmm. Nobody likes to lose, and, uh, and 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 so it hit me. But I had that support network of of, of like how many people messaged me that day from all sides, um, the constituents. Mm-hmm that said you know you were the only candidate that stayed positive the whole campaign mm-hmm. you were the one that ran on your merits not on bashing everybody else mm-hmm. you you should run for city council next mm-hmm. you should not give up you should keep on going and the fact that we pushed that narrative yeah all of that is inspiring mm-hmm. but it doesn't it doesn't mean that I didn't feel that mm-hmm. that that hit of of not winning um but I did, you know, I, I, the next day I was, I was ready actually and because of all that support network and I went right to work and I said, um, this is just the beginning and I feel like a lot of politicians or people who want to get into politics and doesn't work out the first time, um, you know, once that happens, they just disappear. Mm-hmm. Or there's the politicians that only appear every four years whenever it's election time. Mm-hmm. And from the beginning, I said, I am not going to be that type of politician. I'm going to be the politician that uh, shows up every day. That's going to be talking about issues every day. That's going to be meeting people and pushing an agenda forward every day. And uh, you still see me in the city council meetings for the past year and a half since that last election. Uh, I still, you know, talk to people. Uh, I still meet with uh, city officials. Um yeah, We still affect change, I mean, I literally did, so they have a uh, streaming uh, of the city council meetings yeah they've they 've had it for many years, but they had it in a platform in a u stream mm-hmm. and has said, put it in a platform that most people are engaged in put mm-hmm. a live streaming on on facebook live right. especially when you have thirty three thousand people on the following the city page and so <laughs> by advocating for that. Finally, they did it. And now there's thousands of people that actually watch the They're city engaged. council meetings. Mm-hmm. And people get to know what's going on. What are they talking about? Because it's intimidating actually going to a city hall that's dark. Right. Going at nighttime. Going into a courthouse because that's where they have the actual city council meetings. Then not knowing what the process is because nobody welcomes you into, hey, come on in. Right, yeah. This is where you sign up. This is where you can talk. You just these find are, your little
0: corner to hide this, in. These like, <laughs> yeah, these
1: are these are the resolutions. Nobody tells you that. You right. have to go in there and kind of figure it out for yourself. Yeah. So, having that option of being able to watch it online and like it and comment it and share it and and being able to take some of that video content and then publish something because you're interested interested on it, that's that's powerful and that was that I was able to do without being an elected official and I want to show I've always wanted to show people what I can do without even being in office Mm -hmm. Uh, and you know with the idea that uh, people have to have to realize that we need to be at that decision-making table Mm -hmm. we need to have that vote besides having that voice because yes you can talk in a city council but the ones that are making the decisions
0: are the people sitting at that table Mm -hmm. talk to me about the um, so we met I think if we're 2019 maybe 2017 we met Tell to me about the 2016 elections. So... Um, what do you remember from that?
1: Well, I couldn't vote uh, on the primary because mm. I had just uh, gotten my... I got my citizenship right after the primary in, in New Jersey. Um, but I was I was following Bernie Sanders. I had never heard of Bernie Sanders before that. Uh, I liked his campaign, but I was also aware of the danger of having Donald Trump in the White House so I did vote for Hillary Clinton after a uh, terrible result I feel like um, uh, we need to really build that movement from the ground up and ha- ha- we have to defeat uh, Donald Trump in this coming election
0: I, I th- well, let me ask you because tonight, yes. tonight is the, the first debate. night of the Democratic debate that's going over two nights. yes what is your perception as to where we're at or what lessons have been learned or haven't been learned
1: i i think i think it's beautiful because we have so many candidates some people worry i i actually i'm happy that there are so many candidates uh and the process of who gets to be in the in the actual debate Mm -hmm. it's not just the person that people that somebody thinks should be there. Is based on donations. Is based on on how they're doing the polls. Like there's different parameters that balance it out. Um, mm-hmm. I, I feel like a, a lot of policies that were pushed for, you know, during uh, the twenty sixteen presidential like primaries, uh, really help position that conversation towards this election, this primary. Mm-hmm. And I do feel that um, you know because when we see. People, we don't think left or right. We feel how you know fifteen dollar minimum wage. I mean, that's something that is not a left or right issue. Although the, the left is the one that's pushing for it, but it's something that you know. My my dad was never a politician, but even he would tell me because he worked in in business. He worked. He had businesses. He worked in department in marketing departments. He knows the value of people being paid what they. Uh, like a living wage and what they deserve in you know, order for them to perform in order for you to be just a decent person. Yeah. And I know also from experience when I was cleaning homes that if just because I knew how to stand up for myself and charge what I what I knew we deserved as a cleaning service mm-hmm. doesn't mean that other people have that ability or that openness or or or, 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 or that um or that support system behind them that says, Hey you know, you should be charging this much, and not charging the least, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not. It shouldn't be a fight for the bottom. It should be a fight for the for the top. Um. Mm-hmm. So, uh, with that said, uh, it's it's gonna be. I think the the debates is gonna be about who's the who's been the most consistent, mm-hmm. who is the most credible, who's actually pushing for policies that are for the people, uh, who's pushing for change, because. Donald Trump came in because people wanted change. They didn't want the same the same thing as as always. Uh, Obama came in because of change, mm-hmm. but I I feel like Obama came too much into uh into the establishment game, and uh, and that was an issue that although he changed some things, it was not enough for the electorate. And uh, um sure that it's it, you cannot put uh generalized and say that the whole electorate is responding to something specific i learned that also from my own uh experience campaigning uh, but uh, you have to appeal to different uh reasons and you have to you know pick your battles i mean some people are never going to be for you so some people may call all the democrats socialists right mm-hmm. uh, no matter what they do uh it's about like how you manage that those attacks and and I don't believe in the whole thing of not attacking each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are ways to really confront other candidates. Or well, like you did. Or like I did. I never, I never confronted people in, on, at a personal level. Mm-hmm. And I never will. because mm-hmm. I don't, I don't, I, But I do believe in, in tackling uh, the issues and, and, and talking about the record and what other candidates uh, are not fighting for and differentiating yourself from that and actually you something i i have always I, I've, I have as a central as a core part of of being me as a as a person is i like debating people or talking to people who don't agree with me mm-hmm. because i'm not there to just impose my views mm-hmm. i'm here to understand where you're coming from mm-hmm and seeing how we can connect in another on another way. Mm-hmm. Um, many people i you know you, you know you get a lot of people that say no to you, right? But from every no I learned better ways mm-hmm. to get more people to say yes to my proposals and what I stand for. Mm-hmm. Because you, you know you have to understand that you know I ha- I met up with somebody that I had never met before that. She voted for me during the mayoral election. And I said, so how did you come about? Because she mentioned me on social media, so that's how I connected with her. And she said, you know, I'm voting for for Ron because um, he is the only candidate that's running based on his merits. He didn't attack anybody, and I like his proposal, so I'm voting for him. I'm not voting for the establishment. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said, where was it that you had like learn from me that you decided yes was it the debates she's like no i don't watch debates and i said you don't watch debates and like no i don't watch debates because i feel like debates are sound bites um they're going to tell you what they want you want what you want to hear and so i didn't want to waste my time and i'm thinking how many people actually watch debates right. the uh, but she said no i went online i searched i saw some uh social media content as well I saw I saw articles about the, the the comparison of the different candidates, and that's how I made my decision mm-hmm. so in other and other people that I learned voted for me uh, they you know when I'm walking down the street, sometimes some people uh, you know introduce themselves they're like what I, what I stand for what I've been pushing for and they said, "No I learned from you because of the debate so mm-hmm. again, it's going right. to be different from that's so always good that we have so many debates, but it's also going to have to do with what the candidates do in terms of canvassing on talking to the people on their messaging on their proposals on their history uh, and. Well, where talk, they come me, from. talk
0: to me about your top three favorites. If you could just list them.
1: Top three favorite mm-hmm. candidates uh, for the primary for yeah. the Democratic Party. I would say Elizabeth Warren, uh, Bernie Sanders. Uh, the third one. I'm still thinking about who the third one would Julian, be. Julian, Kamala, ah, uh, Biden. <laughs> I, li- I like I like I it. like it's funny you you laughed after you, said, after you said Biden. Um, I I I I like Pete Buttig- Buttigieg. Um, I he's a mayor also, but I feel like I need to learn more about him. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know, he it the the race is still early, so. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure um, Andrew Yang has uh, some interesting ideas also um, but again I think it's very early to right. but the ones that have been the most consistent and that have been out in the fight for a long time uh, and that I know the most and name recognition is one of the biggest um, you know, needs in order to win an election mm-hmm. are Bernie Sanders and, and Elizabeth Warren mm-hmm. um, so I, I, I do feel that you know, it, it, could be, it could be down to those, two, to, to those two candidates, but, again, it's still early to, yeah. to say.
0: Anything can, ha- anything can happen. Anything
1: can happen, and the polls can change from one week to the other. So, mm-hmm. and we, and many times we see the polls at a national level when we do it by states and by mm-hmm. caucuses. So, um, mm-hmm. it's still early, we're going to see, but, um, yeah, those are my preferences for now.
0: All right, well, we're headed towards the end of the interview. Uh so Ron, what is next for you? Like what are you working on? I know like you're you're headed towards your uh, city council yes uh campaign. Talk to me about what's going on with you right now and what's next for you. Yeah, so I
1: just to give a bit of background, I've I've been an advisor for transportation alternatives for Saturnal Economic Development mm-hmm. Corporation. I've been yeah, you're you're very passionate about like um Transit and streets. Yeah. I'm very passionate like about transit and streets. You scooters and stuff? Like. <laughs> not as much
0: as scooters.
1: Uh, I'm actually a bigger fan of uh, walking and biking. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, and I'm more like a five-minute kind of bicy- bicyclist. I'm not a, okay. like a long-distance cyclist with spandex. And, uh, um, I'm, 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 not, I'm not that kind of... I don't have that <laughs> resistance of, of biking oh, yeah, yeah. that long periods of time. Um, but I, I do have a passion because... I feel like where we meet as a community Mm -hmm. is in our streets, Mm -hmm. Um, how we interact and uh, how we, um, you know, like that's our biggest public space. Mm -hmm. And how we use it also determines equality Mm -hmm. and if a certain group of people have priority, you know, you, you should really be able to spread it out so that everybody is, is equal, you know, in the street. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and, and there's the safety concerns too. I mean, I have a, I have a year-old daughter mm-hmm. uh, and I always tell my wife, I'm like, hey man, if, if people thought I was crazy about pedestrian safety and affordability and, uh, and transportation before, imagine now that I have a, a daughter uh, right. like how much more time I mean the climate crisis that's all you can you can also you also impact it through transit through uh, how we use our streets how, how do we arrange our streets so everything's connected mm-hmm. to our streets even uh, home affordability so the more parking that we develop that we that we build the less uh, housing stock that we have in our cities. Mm. So, that actually has been shown that when buildings include parking garages, it increases the, the, the cost of living by 12% mm. for your unit. Right, right, right. So, and, and, and because it is a waste of, of space because mm. of how much a car that's sitting there takes up. Mm-hmm. And when we have uh, an affordability crisis, you know, all, all around the US. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to think about things like that. Uh, when we think about um, transit, we're also thinking about quality of life, but also economic opportunities. Are we able to walk or take mass transit that will be without traffic to our jobs? Mm-hmm. Or are we going to be having that risk of? you know, whether or not we're gonna get in a car and then instead of it taking us half an hour, it's gonna take us an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's another hour, that's, that's extra time that you're losing spending time with your kids, spending time with your, with your family, um, doing other, uh, other initiatives, doing other type of activities. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's also extra cost out of your pocket. I, so I don't, I don't own a car, I don't drive, mm-hmm. Ma- mainly because I don't need to and that's a privilege because I was able to stay in Hoboken for now mm-hmm. and I'm saying for now because even though I have a good job I'm a I'm a young professional um it's it's getting more and more expensive
0: mm.
1: and it's been getting more expensive for the past 15 years and you know we've had the same councilman for the past 15 years and it's still and, and prices are, are still going up there's no uh, other options even for young professionals imagine people who don't have a, a college degree imagine people who who have to, you know, earn a $15 or less wage uh, an hour. Um, So we have to... Imagine our seniors. I mean, I have a mom that she's uh, 65 years old already. She's going to retire maybe in a year and a half. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, she... uh, Like, I'm wondering, is like what happens after she gets... uh, After she retires? Would she be able to still afford to live in Hoboken? So this impacts... Me on a personal level, and I know this also impacts the majority of people in Hoboken on a personal level. Um, you know, the, the level of, of income and uh, education degrees in Hoboken is pretty high. It's very well educated population, there's a very young population too. Um, but everybody, if what I'm trying, what I'm working always to project to people is that we're all in the same boat. We all live in the same city. And I used to live in a city 20 years ago that I used to brag to people that I could. You know, I was like, man, in Hoboken, you actually, you're going to cross the street and the car stops for you. And I tell you, go ahead. No, mm-hmm. You're good. That doesn't happen anymore. Mm-hmm. So we have to, we cannot depend on the courtesy of people. We have to make sure that our street, the way we arrange it, and it has been proven through engineering, has to be arranged in a way that forces people to respect each other Mm because because you know if one out of ten people are jerks guess what you guys at some point you're gonna get that so so the new
0: york city is the new york city attitude is kind of like shifting over into the hoboken i mean i'm just saying because new york city like
1: i i feel like it's from everywhere i mean every because you know you have people that come from different places uh, that travel from different places in their car and they go through Hoboken and I'm not about to, I'm not about making a wall so that nobody comes right. into into Hoboken uh, it's about wait so this is what we got how can we arrange it in a different way mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you know it's it's about beating that uh, winning over that conservative mindset of not changing anything when we should always be changing for the best. and That's something my dad would always tell me. My dad would always tell me is like, yes, I, you know, you as a person, you are you, and you know, some people tell me is like, oh no, you know, I'm this is me, and I, you should love me for who I am. And I'm like, yeah, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't change for the better. Mm. And the same is true for cities. As a city, as a community, we have to change for the better, and that means re- reprioritizing, reprioritizing transit, re- uh, pedestrian always comes first affordability we're not doing enough as a city you know there's there are ways to uh, have you know <clears throat> talking about presidential candidates uh when Bernie Sanders was uh, mayor of Vermont they created a community land trust so that they're able to so the community is able to keep affordability in developing housing that is that is owned by the residents, but it's not, it, it, you know, propends to speculation and to higher prices without touching the market pl- market priced uh, housing, like. But we need to have those options that are uh, pushed as a community that we're all p- pulling our funds together so that we can be a diverse cities because that diversity is what makes us better. That's diversity is what uh, makes us more attractive as a city. That diversity is what improves our school system i was i was mentioning to somebody i'm like you know that in order to improve our school system the one of the best ways is to making sure that our teachers live in hoboken mm-hmm. and what kind of teacher can afford a rent in hoboken with uh, with the salary of what, what a average
0: for a one-bedroom <sighs> or even like
1: a it, it 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 depends it could go from 1800
0: up mm. That's pretty
1: expensive. i i have i i'm i'm in a i'm in a one bedroom four flights up no elevator and it's two thousand one hundred Wow. and so and and the prices keep going up my rent control is important but not just having rent control because that's how my mom is able to stay in the apartment that she's at but it's also being proactive as a city to protect those uh tenant rights because i know also people i have friends from high school that were we pushed out by, by the landlords, mm-hmm. by developers. And something that I am doing differently is that I'm making sure that people know that I'm not taking any developer money. Mm-hmm. And it's easy to go to a developer and ask for funds for running for office. But again, uh, you know, if, if it was to do the same thing that everybody, every other politician does, then
0: I wouldn't run for office. But that's not what I'm about. So talk to me about like, you know... When is this upcoming election to the city council? Like, what, what's going on? So, the election
1: is November 5th. Okay. Um, the, uh, right now, I'm in the process of collecting signatures mm-hmm. in order to be on the ballot. I've uh, been talking about with this with people for since last year. Mm-hmm. So, it's not like I just started. Uh, and it's just about knocking on doors, talking to people, uh, gaining that support, uh, thinking that you know we have that sense of urgency you know in terms of climate change you know we have until 2030 in order to make for us to really drastically change our, our ways of, of, um, the, of, of our carbon footprint mm-hmm. uh, as a city we can push that forward and be the model also for other cities to do so as well um, and there's innovative ways to do that uh, especially starting with our transportation our biggest footprint as a city, one of the biggest footprints as a city is our transit system,
0: mm-hmm.
1: as transit options it's cars trucks, even buses, they're the ones that take make them make a bigger uh, carbon footprint right. so transforming our, our, our bus system so that our bus systems are, are electric um, having express lane, bus lanes kind of like what has what been done in New York City mm-hmm. that's been done since bogotá in colombia for the past 20 years mm-hmm. uh it was you know by making sure that the buses are the most convenient way to move around because they have their own lane and they can move 60 people at a time mm-hmm. that makes a huge difference and through hoboken we have uh two of the top seven bus lines uh, in the state of new jersey mm-hmm. that go through hoboken uh that leave from hoboken too so they go into New York City, they go through Jersey City, mm-hmm. from Hoboken. So we have these opportunities to make huge changes. Um, the city is the one that manages the streets. So just by make, reprioritizing, we can make a big impact
0: in, mm-hmm. in different ways. And last question. Um, so you're here joining me after work right now. Um. <laughs> What advice do you have for people, you know, looking to run for office or looking to take on other projects? Because you know you're balancing a full time job with advocacy, then with like political campaigning. What advice do you have for people in order to be able to balance and a family
1: too? So. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, literally yesterday I I got home. I I had dinner. Uh, and while I was having dinner with my daughter. Uh, like right after I had to put her to uh, to give her a bath and then I ran out to gather get, get signatures so mm-hmm. it's it's a struggle but I've always been in that uh, rhythm I've always been in the rhythm of, of always being on the move um, uh, you know it's I think the first focus is thinking why you're doing it right what's the purpose behind uh, running for office and now more than ever I feel that we need people to run for office for the right reasons which is for uh, for people for making in my case for making a more people friendly city um, to be very people centric uh, and you know from that then also talk like build that network of people that will support you mm-hmm. uh, that will help you but based on on specific issues and solutions right uh, some people may respond to uh, one topic and others two other topics uh, that, that you may be interested about but what a, what is the macro level uh, idea that really moves people forward to, to pushing for your candidacy mm-hmm. is is you cannot do it alone. It has, there has to be a team. Um you have to be resourceful. So you know other candidates they just you know, dump a whole bunch of money to a consulting agency I'm more about you know, being you know, bootstrapping the, the campaign, right? right? So I, I know the people that do uh, the mailers. I know people that do uh, digital marketing. I'm in marketing, so I, I, I get to work on my own uh, you know, project uh, because of, of what I've learned over the years. But uh, you know, building that network of people who can uh, help you out, that's very important neighbors knowing your getting to know your neighbors that doesn't take an actual election to do so mm-hmm. you can you can start right away talking to strangers uh, next door uh, make that's how we build community just by starting to those conversations you're already making an impact mm-hmm. uh, and and getting to know your neighbors helps uh, you know in, in, i mean from Learning how to better use the resources from the city and things that you could do at the city to um you know the whole benefit of networking you know mm-hmm. so there's there's always the benefit, but the central aspect has to be what's your purpose and why you're doing it and who you're doing it for and I'm doing it for for my neighbors I'm doing it for people who have uh the same uh issues that I do, which is You know, I have a, for example, a daughter that uh, I don't know if she'll be able to walk to the park or walk to school on her own when she turns eight years old. Mm. I want her to be able to do that. I want her to be able to walk safely to school, into a park. Uh, I want her to have a waterfront that's open and public for for her and for her friends. Uh, I want uh, my mom to be able to stay in Hoboken because she's able to walk to the store, walk to their church, walk to her Walk around, which is what keeps her healthy, also. Mm-hmm. Um, if we, if you know, like she doesn't have a choice, we need to be able to develop those options for people to be able to stay in Hoboken uh, to enjoy the progress that we're seeing in Hoboken um, because of the demand and how much people like it and people want to move in and, and how much surprises well, are I'm not moving there now. So <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: hopefully you'll
1: be able to eventually, but, uh, it's, it, it's, it's tough. It's tough. Mm-hmm. And, and for couples or, or young people or even working class people for, for them to be able to stay in Hoboken and, and for the, you know, I, I, I told, um, I told my wife cause it, we, my, my daughter just turned one, uh, in uh, in May mm-hmm. May eighteenth, and um, we were thinking of where we're gonna have the the birthday party, and I said, well, my apartment is too small. Mm-hmm. Like, our apartment is too small, we can't really have the whole family here. And then I said, well, one of the we pay a premium to live in Hoboken, so let's take it to the park, let's do a picnic, mm-hmm. and let's have all our friends and family come over and celebrate uh, Sophia's first birthday. And that's that's the benefit. That's what we're working towards. The nothing, we, not everything can be done through the private sector. We have to have that mentality that uh, in order to have the capacity to make a big impact, you need that to pull your funds together as a, in, in the government. Government itself is not bad. Is when, that, when the wrong people and priorities are the ones ruling the city or the oral government. But it's, you know, things like a park, a public park, or a public waterfront. It doesn't matter how much money you make. You have that access to that park because it's for everyone. Um, those make a difference. Those, well, that That's social justice right there.
0: That's a perfect way to end. Ron, thank you so much for uh, being with me here today. I mean, I think we went through a lot in this interview, and I really appreciate your time. Um, and I think... What I got from this, you know, it seems like this is one big advertisement for Hoboken. <laughs> but even if it is, I will say, you know, if you are from Long Island, New York City, upstate New York, or outside, do go visit Hoboken. It is beautiful, and I hope everybody gets a chance to visit it. Reach out to me, and uh, I'll give you a tour. Yeah, well, what are the uh, socials? Uh, yeah, N J. That's
1: my, that's my handle for Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Uh, you'll, you'll find me everywhere. Awesome.
0: Well, I hope you really enjoyed that interview as much as I did. It was great to sit down with Ron in person and really just get to know each other and talk. And you know, really looking forward to all the great work that um, he and I will hopefully do in the future collaborating. And so, remember, you can follow me at Handle on the Mic on Instagram, on Twitter, and you can follow the Immigration Mike Podcast on Instagram at Immigration Mike Podcast to get all the interviews and. Go to Apple Podcasts and Spotify and download all ninety one two episodes uh, to your phone, um, to your tablet, to your laptop, and you know just get to know all of these really complex, beautiful, and amazing stories. Um, so yeah, so more details to come on the November event at Hofstra University, and uh, yeah. <laughs> Have a great rest of your week, and I'll see you in the next couple of weeks.